Amen. We can do a lot better than that. All God's people said, Amen. Thank you for sharing this morning. I hope, uh, hope you noticed today that we had a new member of our praise team, uh, Daniel Carroll, one of our newest members up here playing bass. Daniel, I love bass, so thank you for doing that. Would you help me thank him for doing such a good job this morning? And, of course, all the praise team. A special word of thanks to Ronnie Joe for sharing about your adventures down in the DR, especially because it's a reminder that there are literally thousands of ways to share the gospel. Lots of ways. Maybe volleyball is one. Maybe passing out candy is one. Maybe setting up inflatables is one. Maybe teaching a class is one. There are lots of ways to share the gospel. And sometimes, sometimes you can use words. I'm reminded of a story that Chuck Swindoll shares in his commentary on the book of James. In the book of James, he's talking about when he was working in a machine shop in the 1950s, and he had a young man in the room with him that was from another faith, and he wanted to convince him to convert. He thought if he'd just come in day after day and pound this guy with argument after argument and question after question, eventually this guy, would, he would yield and he would be saved. And so he did that. He was young in his faith, but he had all this learning that was coming to his head from seminary, and he would go to this guy and pound on him day after day. And finally, one day as he was speaking to the young man, the young man grabbed his arm and said, listen, okay, I get it. You're right. I'm wrong. But I'll never change because I hate you. Wow. In different words, it's not just the words we speak. It's the way we act. It's the words that we speak when we're not speaking. It's how do we live our life? Do we serve? Do we show good works to others? This was uh, driven home to me a long time ago from my mother. My mother served for years as a waitress in restaurants across the city and across the state. And my mother used to make the statement that she hated the Sunday church crowd. Now, my mom was a church member, and she was... Uh, a, a good woman, but she just used to comment that those who came in after church were always the worst customers. They gave the worst tips, if they got a tip, and they were always the most ornery when it came down to their order. Steak came back just a little bit more cooked or undercooked. They were the biggest complainers. Several years ago, we had Hell's Angels come into Bowling Green. They came in every year for a, a motorcycle rally out at Beachman Park. They would come down to her restaurant, and she used to tell me I would rather have them in my restaurant any day than the church crowd. What a commentary. Different words. She was saying all of our good words ring kind of hollow when they don't have good works to back them up. By the way, when you go to the restaurant this afternoon, be sure to leave a good tip and a compliment. You see, those are the kinds of things in the world that we live in that make a difference in the lives of people. We can stand in this room and whatever room you go to and say, here's my theological framework and you should make sure that you conform to that. And I'm all for that. You know that. But if your works don't match your words, quite frankly, nobody's listening in fact, it might ring somewhat hollow. One of the things we learn by reading the Scriptures is that God called us not just to be saved, but to live out the faith that we confess in a meaningful way 
so that people can see our good works. I'm going to quote Jesus here. See our good works and glorify God. In different words, if all they get are good words and no good works, God is left out of the picture. Now, with that thought in mind, I want you to go to the book of Acts chapter 2. And I want to dive into the early church for just a moment. I want us to look at what was going on then that should be going on now. I'm in Acts chapter 2, picking up at verse 41 and following. So those who accepted his message, that is, Peter had been preaching and a lot of people got saved. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 of them were added. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and had everything in common. So they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as everyone had a need. And every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day, the Lord added to them those who were being saved. So we have at verse 41, 3,000 get saved. Down at the end of the text, at verse 47, we have those who are being saved. There is a lot of saving going on, i.e. the church is doing the job of helping people come to faith. I do want you to notice from the outset that part of that occurred because someone was preaching the gospel. They were teaching the doctrine of the Christian faith, and when they heard that sermon by, by Peter, they just responded, and 3,000 were saved. But I want you to also notice as you get down in the text, it seems to indicate that what was going on inside of the church as they were out in the world also was bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to make a, a number of um, observations from the text just to remind us about the power of serving God, the power of serving God. The first one is this, that your service validates your faith, and your faith should stimulate your service. I want you to make sure you understand what I'm saying. If you study religion today, there are only two veins of thought when it comes how to get to heaven, just two. You can melt them all down. Either you're saved by faith or you're saved by works. That is, either you trust in Jesus or some God figure, whatever your religion is, either you're saved by faith or you believe that you can do enough good that God will let you into heaven. What is sad in America is we think it's an either-or option. Either you're saved by faith or by works. When in fact the Bible says, to be clear, there's only one road to salvation. It is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing that you can do to add to save you more or to keep you from being saved. Faith in the work of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and rose from the grave is the only way that you can get to heaven. Here's the formula. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. No works will ever get you into heaven. So I want to make sure from the outset that you understand that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, while that's true, it's also true that a faith that's authentic should have some fruit. 
Listen to the Bible. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Matthew, Jesus speaking, red letter, you will recognize them by their fruits. In John 13.35, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples and that you love one another. James 1.26, faith without works is dead. And James add this in chapter 2, verse 18. He said, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. In different words, if we have an authentic faith, the expression of that should be lived out every day. We should be able to see by the things you do and the way you live that there's something that's different. When I read about this particular instance, I find that 3,000 people get saved and immediately, immediately begin to serve one another. I want you to look at the text a little more closely. It says here that they sold their stuff. Verse 44, the believers had everything in common. That is not communism. I heard someone say, well, look, the Bible teaches communism. That's not what that's about. That's about a faith that believes if I have a brother that's in need, I want to do what I should do to help my brother. If I have a friend that I can, I can minister to, I want to do that. But what I want you to notice is that immediately upon their salvation, they are concerned and care about one another. They're doing things that are so real that people can see them, and when they see them, they say, hey, I wonder what's different about those Christians. Why do they help one another? Why do they love one another? Why do they care about the needs of somebody else that's in their congregation? The whole point is simply this, that their faith was validated by their works. People on the outside watched those on the inside and said, hey, I don't know what they got, but whatever they got was real enough to change their life, to help their brethren. I like that. By the way, most of our world's looking for that today. They're really not looking for our words. They are inclined to believe them when they see our good works. The other side of that is really pretty simple, isn't it? Not only does faith validate or works validate our faith, we also say that our faith stimulates our works. Why did these people... Why did they want to serve others? Why did they want to get involved in somebody else's life is what I'm asking. It's because their faith was real. It's because not only did they have faith, but their faith pushed them in that direction. They were not pretenders. You know, over in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the judgment at the end of time. And there he says there will be sheep and goats. There'll be sheep and goats. The sheep are the real followers of God, and the goats were those who were pretenders. He said, how can you tell the difference? It's interesting if you read the text, it's by their service, by their works. Those who have done good works are probably the ones who really were following their faith, and that's the evidence in the future. What the world is looking for is a bunch of Christians who will get out of the building and start to serve others. Sometimes the service is right here, maybe singing, playing, maybe it's helping this evening, maybe it's cleaning the building, it may be a thousand different things. What the world wants to know is your faith real enough to get you out of the chair to do something to help someone else. You might remember the name Oliver Cromwell, for those of you who are history students. When he was ruling over England, they had a shortage on silver. They couldn't find enough silver to make coins. And so someone came to Cromwell and they said, well, the only silver we can find is in the statues that are inside the church. 
And Cromwell said, well, that's wonderful. Why don't we go melt down the saints and put them back into circulation? I think that's what God's trying to say to us. Time to melt down the saints and get them back into the world doing things because that's the evidence of our faith. This group, this group right here, was so busy serving one another that everybody took note. Now, let me make a second observation here that service in this text Service indicates attitude, and that attitude enriches service. Look with me down a little bit further. We're going to read verse 46. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Gladness and simplicity of heart. Some translations take the word simplicity and translate it as the word humility. The idea that you are now looking at others as better than yourself. Rather than saying, hey, how does this affect me? The whole world should help me. Why aren't you blessing me? They were looking at each other and saying, how can we help one another? The humble spirit says, I will serve. Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. I like what Ephesians says. He says, render your service with a good attitude. Galatians, Paul writes, serve the Lord with love. And I love, again, Colossians 3.23. It says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it enthusiastically unto the Lord. In different words, there's a connection between the spirit in which you do your service and the value of the service that you render. I've often wondered this. If God was to judge my actions in heaven based off my motive and my attitude, what would my actions be worth? If God was to literally say, okay, Jerry, I know you did that thing and it was a good thing, but your attitude was pretty sorry when you did it. Jerry, you don't get any credit for that. Now, I don't need credit to get into heaven. I get into heaven because of Jesus. I've already said that. But I wouldn't have a reward because... My heart wasn't in it. I find that people serve for one of three reasons. Either they serve begrudgingly because they feel obligated, or they serve out of guilt because someone made them feel bad if they don't serve, or they serve out of gladness because they simply love the Lord and they love people and they want to do it. That's what it comes down to. These people, isn't it interesting that these people loved each other and their attitude was one of joy. In different words, if you want to add meaning to your service, check your spirit. Check your spirit. There are times when ministry can be a burden. I don't want to, I don't want to lessen the, or diminish that. Those of us who serve full-time in ministry understand this probably better than anybody. There will be days when people are hurting in such a way that the burden is so heavy that it, it's just almost unbearable. There are times when Churches go through seasons, and it seems like we lose this person or that person. There are other days when people get disgruntled, and they, they're mad, and there are other days when people are just they're indifferent altogether, and that burden can get heavy. I want to tell you, we must not let the burden of our service rob us of the joy of the service, because that's what gives us meaning. If you, if you look at the text closely, it was service that indicated their attitude, but their attitude enriched their service. You know, I, um, I've spent more than my fair share of time in nursing homes. I hate to go to nursing homes. 
You say, Brother Jerry, you're a preacher. You're supposed to love. Go visit those folks. I'm just going to be honest. I hate going to nursing homes. I've told my boys, you put me in a nursing home, I'm taking you out of the wheel. That's where it is. I don't, I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy going to watch people suffer to the end of their death, until their life's over. That's just, that doesn't bring any joy to me. So I never look forward to when I, I would have to go. That's a key word for me, have to go to do my duty. But you know what I found is every time I do go, and I sit with some person and I pray with them, that when I leave, my spirit has been lifted. Not their spirit. I don't know if it helped them or not. It helped me. There's something about the doing of ministry that brings joy and satisfaction and meaning to my heart. And that's what they found here. That when they did what they should do, that that impacted and enriched their life and made it more meaningful. You already know, by the way, don't you? You already know that when you're doing stuff for yourself, you don't get a lot of pleasure out of it. You know, I'm not saying you can't have fun. I enjoy it when I go scuba diving and do all that kind of stuff. What I am saying, though, you really want to bless your own life, you do that by blessing somebody else's life. Service was what they were doing. They were caring for one another. When the church doesn't care for one another, then, dear friends, we're all messed up. You know, the great story on this is Jesus, isn't it? He always is the illustration. He has planned the last meal. He's told his apostles, you guys, go down to such and such a place and prepare the meal. And when we get there, we'll all eat this last meal together before I die. They didn't fully understand it, but they did it. They got down there, and the way it worked in Jerusalem at times, they had narrow roads, and they were very dusty. And so when you got to somebody's house, you would take your shoes off and leave them at the door. Now, the way it was supposed to work is if they had a servant at that house, the servant was supposed to wash your feet and the feet of everybody else that came in behind you. If there was not a servant at the house, the first person that arrived, first guest that got there, was supposed to wash the feet, uh, wash their own feet, and then wash the feet of everybody else that came in afterward. Now, you know when we get down to the Lord's table that Jesus himself, he takes a basin and a towel, and he gets down and he washes the feet of all the apostles. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you something about Jesus, right? But doesn't it tell you something about the apostles? They're all sitting there with dirty hearts and dirty feet. Not one of them was willing to humble themselves for their brethren. Not only did they not wash their feet, they certainly weren't going to wash anybody else's feet, i.e., we are not going to serve others. That's beneath me. But, dear friends, it wasn't beneath Christ. He said they served one another with gladness and simplicity or humility. That's what we learn. We learn Christ and we serve one another. Now I want to know, make one last observation here. It's down in verse 47. It says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Now the work of redemption is the work of God. The Lord was doing the adding. But isn't it interesting that they were having favor with all the people. So let me make this last observation. That service empowers your witness, and your witness will produce more servants. They had favor with all the people. So I want to ask a simple question. Why do you think they had favor with the people? Did the people have favor or look at the church favorably because they were preaching a sermon? Well, no. 
Were they looking at them favorably because they had another Bible study? No. Are you opposed to that, Brother Jerry? Of course not. Why did they have favor? They had favor with the people because the people were watching them with each other. And the more the people watched them and saw how they served one another, the softer their hearts came to the gospel. That is, that service is not witness. I don't want you to misunderstand this. Service and evangelism are two separate things. But when you serve others, it empowers your witness. And when you are busy serving others, and God can use that as a method to produce more servants. In different words, if you look at the text here, it says that those who were being saved by the Lord were those who had favor among the people. They saw their good works, and they glorified the Father who was in heaven. Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000? The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000. Why did Jesus feed the 5,000? Answer, they were hungry. That's why. He fed the 5,000 because they're hungry and because Jesus understood that nobody wants to walk down the Roman road with you when their stomach is growling. In different words, it was his good works that empowered his good words so that people would respond to the gospel. And the same thing is true today. Now, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't be highly evangelistic. And as you heard this morning, we need to be making uh, opportunities for gospel conversations. What I'm saying is that sometimes it's in your serving that it opens that window for you and I to share the gospel. I want to conclude this morning with a, a story that comes out of war, picture of servanthood. This goes back to uh, World War II. We were bombing the German city of Kassel. We had one of our B-17s, B-18s were flying over the city, dropping bombs. And, of course, the anti-aircraft was firing all around them. And the guys in that particular plane, particularly a guy by the name of Bon, he was uh, the pilot, heard a clink. That means that a shell around, 22-millimeter round, had just pierced the gas tank. Normally what that means is an explosion because that shell had explosive device inside of it and obviously it would ignite the gas and the whole plane was gone. But it didn't that day. They didn't know why, but when they landed the plane the next day, Bond goes down to uh, where they're working on this engine or, and on this plane and, and he asked if they would give him that shell that did not explode inside of his gas tank. He said it was a gift from God. And the guy turned to him and said, well, which one do you want? He said, well, what do you mean? He said, there were 11 shells inside your gas, your gas tank. He said, we've got to examine them, and we noticed that there was something really unusual about them. As they were pulling off the head, that is the bullet or the top part of it, and looking down in the casing, there was no explosive charge inside of that shell. Ten of them were completely empty. They were as clean as a whistle and as harmless. He said, but one was different. He said, one of them, believe it or not, had a message rolled up and tucked into that shell. And they opened it and they started to read it, but they realized it was in Czechoslovakia. And so they found a guy that could read Czech. They brought him down there. He read it, and this is what the message inside the shell said. 
He said, this is all we can do for now. Those Czechs who'd been forced, conscripted into the German army, knew that they shouldn't be killing. And so all they did was they took out all the explosive from the shells that they were firing. This is all we can do now. What a great motto for the church. You may be thinking that the thing you're doing is small and insignificant. The thing that you're doing might be the thing that saves somebody else's life. This is all that you can do now. So you may be passing out candy tonight and say, well, it's no big deal. I wish I could do more. This is, if this is all you can do now, do that. If teaching or, or preaching or singing or serving or, or doing anything else is a little thing that you think you can do, that might be the thing that saves somebody's life. This is what happened in Acts. It said they had favor with the people, and God added to their number daily. You want to see God bless the church in a powerful way? You find where you're supposed to serve and do what you can now, and God will do the rest. Our job, be faithful. God's job, bring them to faith. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Service is powerful. Because it's evidence, because it's testimony, because it's light. We are in a dark world and people desperately need to see God. And they're not seeing God because we're speaking at them. They're seeing God when we're living a certain way around them. Jesus said it like this. Let your light so shine among men, they may see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. It doesn't matter who you are. There's some way that you can serve here. The things that you might think are little things are big things in the economy of God. And you never know when this thing that you can do right now is the thing that will be your testimony to bring them to faith. So today the invitation is simple. First, if you're not God's child, your greatest need will always be to come to faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He did that for your justification, that if you by faith would believe in him, he will forgive your sin and give you eternal life. That's the offer. Jesus plus nothing equals eternal life. Come to him today. If you're already saved, and I know that's probably the majority of people in this room, if you're already saved, you simply need to ask, how am I serving? Can people look at my life and based off what they see in me, are they drawn to Jesus Christ? They see that I love and I care for others in such a way, that I serve in such a way, that Jesus is glorious to them. Ask yourself, how am I serving? And if you're not doing anything, and don't leave the room till you see us and let us get you signed up to do something. Father, we thank you for your word and for the wonderful example of those who lived a life that was so magnanimous, so beautiful, that people noticed and they were drawn to Christ. Lord, we know, we know that not everyone is going to trust you. We know that not everyone will care. But God, we know there are also people that are watching. They're watching us. And they're making their determination about the reality of Jesus based off the way we live. Help us to serve one another with joy and gladness. 
May Christ be glorified through it. For we pray it in his name. Amen.